Hello, everyone. This is your Captain Wade speaking and coming again once again in the dry dock with my co-host and executive officer, Will. Welcome aboard. And man, we've got a doozy of an episode for all of you guys today. Um, this is going to be uh, this is going to be something that is going to be almost a hot off the presses episode, but with a little bit of history. We are maritime history after all. That's our primary goal. But when the Navy introduces a new class of ships, and not just that, but reintroducing a type, we get a little excited, don't we, Will? We sure do. All right. So the key bit of information we're going to be working with here is the Navy has reintroduced the USS Constellation, which is going to be a frigate. A frigate uh, is an interesting ship type, and its type has morphed over the last ooh, two centuries of the U.S. Navy. Uh, now, uh, we're not going to be covering what this term means for uh, foreign navies, uh, but to keep it within the context of the U.S. Navy at this, at this point. So, Will, you're more of our sailing guy. I got to admit, you're the sailing guy. So... Give us a little bit of a recap of what a sailing frigate was. Sure. So the term sailing frigate evolved over time, what exactly it meant. But the classical sailing frigate really developed in the 1700s, originally by the Dutch Navy and the British Royal Navy. And then it eventually spread to other fleets around the world. And basically what a frigate turned into was a fully rigged three-masted ship that carried its main armament on a single gun deck, which was the upper deck. It sometimes also had some additional guns above that, but the upper deck was the main deck where these guns were located. And a frigate was considered sort of a medium-sized warship. So it was larger than a smaller ship like a sloop or a brig, but it was smaller than a ship of the line. And a ship of the line, which we've discussed in previous episodes, is a basically the sailing era equivalent of a battleship. It was a ship designed to be able to fight other ships of the line in classical line actions, um, so-called, because the ships would all be in a line. Whereas a frigate was more of a scout vessel. Um, they would do extended independent operations. They were used to kind of figure out where the other fleets were, um, but they really weren't powerful enough to participate in full-scale fleet actions. So they were considered not a ship of the line. Really, um, uh, in if we're talking about kind of World War II terms, sail era frigates were roughly equivalent to a cruiser um, from the World War II period. So they that's had a similar what role. I was thinking as well. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's pretty much the role that they had. And they varied in size. And we'll, we'll cover um, how those the size of the frigate changed over time as well. So within the U.S. Navy, our first frigates were a group of 13 warships that were ordered by the Continental Navy during the Revolutionary War. And those formed the backbone of our fleet during that conflict. The U.S. did not deploy ships of the line during the Revolutionary War. We did build one, the USS America, but we immediately gave it to France as a thank you present. So it was never used by the U.S. Navy. But the frigates did see a lot of action against the British during the Revolutionary War without a whole lot of success. Most of them were captured or destroyed. There were a few exceptions. Uh, the USS Alliance, which we covered in a previous episode, was a very successful frigate from the Revolutionary War. Um, but after the Revolutionary War was over with, um, we kind of stood down the Navy. The Alliance was the last ship of the Continental Navy, and she was sold off shortly after the Revolutionary War. And so for a period of time, we did not have a 
Navy at all. Um, we did have an extensive merchant marine, but we did not have a U.S. Navy. That changed in the um, 1790s when, uh, as we've discussed in previous episodes, the Barbary pirates started causing problems. And so the U.S. needed to create a new navy in order to defend our merchant fleet against these pirates. Um, and also, it was really necessary to have a navy to maintain the U.S.'s sovereignty on the high seas. And so Congress authorized the construction of six frigates, which would become the core of the new United States Navy. And these six ships were in basically two size categories. There, the traditionally sized frigates were the Constellation, the Chesapeake, and the Congress. And then the real sort of innovative showstoppers were the larger ships. So what the U.S. realized was that we were never going to be able to compete with European navies um, in terms of overall numbers of ships in this time but period. But we could improve on overall quality of the ship. Exactly. So, but we, we could build the ships to have qualitative superiority over any individual ship that they might encounter. And so Joshua Humphreys, who was the designer of the U.S. Navy's heavy frigate class, built them with extremely strong um, structural design using live oak construction and a very powerful armament. Um, and so these three ships were the Constitution, the United States, and the President. And of course, of these, the Constitution, the famous old iron size, is still around. Um, and so these ships uh, were an improvement over European frigates because they carried more guns and they carried heavier guns. The kind of standard British frigate of the era was a 38-gun frigate using 12 or 18-pounder cannons. By comparison, the Constitution was rated as a 44-gun ship. When I say rated, that was basically a term for a description of the ship. Um, but th these guns were heavier. She carried 24-pounder guns, which were sometimes used on ships of the line. And in practice, these three ships actually carried closer to 56 guns. So they were extremely powerful frigates for their time period. And they basically gave rise to a new ship type called the heavy frigate. This was also sometimes known as a double-banked frigate because they would also have sometimes a continuous row of guns above the upper deck as well. So they really did have two complete decks of guns. Um, our six frigates were very successful in first the, the uh, wars with the Barbary pirates and an undeclared conflict with France called the Quasi-War. And then later on, they became very famous for their service during the War of 1812. Um, the Constitution was able to capture or destroy four British major warships during the War of 1812. Uh, the United States also captured a British frigate, and um, they became so well-known that the British fleet actually had standing orders that individual British frigates were not to engage any of these three U.S. warships. Um, only two of the six frigates were lost during the War of 1812, the Chesapeake and the President. Um, and anyway, this, this type was so successful that we decided to essentially duplicate the design after the war. And so we built a new class of frigates called the Potomac class. I believe there were nine of them that entered service. And they were essentially improved versions of the Constitution. We also built two, two other ships, the Guerriere and the Java, which were similar. Um, and also this inspired foreign navies to start building similar frigate types as well. So the British built the Newcastle and the Glasgow, which were... Um, some of their early ships that had, uh, it was the Newcastle and the, the Leander, excuse me, not the Glasgow, which um, were similar to the Constitution and designed to counter uh, these big U.S. frigates. In some respects, because these U.S. frigates were designed to basically be able to outrun anything that they couldn't outfight, they were almost a early, 
early implementation of the battle cruiser concept or possibly okay. the pop battleship concept. Um, so obviously that's not fully a full analog, but it was sort of a similar operational concept. So these frigates continued to serve through the Civil War. Also, between the War of 1812 and the Civil War, we built steam-powered frigates. So we started with paddle steamers, some of the famous ones being the Powhatan and the Susquehanna and the Mississippi. Um, and then we transitioned from that into screw-powered frigates, which had a propeller as opposed to paddle wheels. Uh, the most famous class of screw-powered frigates were the Wabash class, which were the Wabash the Colorado, the Roanoke, the Minnesota, and a famous ship called the Merrimack, which we talked about in a previous episode. Um, and these ships were significantly more powerful than the sailing frigates that they succeeded because they carried shell guns. And so these guns were much more powerful than uh, the types of guns that were carried on earlier frigates. They were eight inch or nine inch shell guns that fired instead of a, a solid cannonball, they fired an explosive shell. So these were very powerful ships. Um, they were kind of the battleship equivalents of the U.S. Navy during that era. Other navies still did have ships of the line, sometimes armed with shell guns. We did have ships of the line in our fleet as well that we built after the War of 1812, but we did not have any steam-powered ships of the line, unlike some European fleets. So anyway, these, um, these sail and steam-powered frigates served throughout the Civil War and also afterwards. After the Civil War, the U.S. Navy went through a period of stagnation technologically, um, which was only really resolved in the late 1880s and early 1890s when we had what was called the New Navy, which was a program that was started under President Chester Arthur and then continued afterwards. That resulted in new steel-powered ships. But that was a, a huge time of technological transition. And so these steel ships, um, which were steam-powered and also had auxiliary sail rigs, were starting to transition into new ship-type designations. So instead of calling our new ships frigates, they were referred to officially as cruisers. And so that was kind of the beginning of the transition away from the frigate designation into the, the more modern terminology that we're familiar with. And so we really didn't have ships in the fleet referred to as frigates, with the exception of the old Ironsides, for most of the early part of the 20th century. And um, But as Wade's going to talk about next, uh, the ship type had a, a resurgence um, after World War II, which um, led to some, some different roles than the original frigate um, type. Uh, this began kind of during the, the World War II era. The British used some the, the term frigate for uh, some anti-submarine vessels that were pretty small, um, and they were kind of equivalent to the U.S. destroyer escort designation. Um, so they were smaller than destroyers, but bigger than corvettes and it intended really to go after submarines. And so that is kind of what led to the modern designation, which Wade's going to tell us about now. Absolutely. Thank you, Will. That was actually, uh, that was actually more than I was expecting, but thank you for reminding us again about uh, our good old girl, the old Ironsides. Uh, I still want to visit her so much. Um, <laughs> you've, be you've been to her, if I remember correctly. I have a long time ago. Yeah, it was it was really cool. But in any case, everyone, the term frigate, like Will said, disappeared for a good long while, but it did come back. And actually, I have a little bit of a connection to this. One of the first frigates that started appearing again in the uh, 20th century 
one of those ships was actually named after my home city. Now, I think I mentioned that I am from the city of Rockford, Illinois. And during the Second World War, the U.S. Navy came up with a type of ship that was even smaller than a destroyer escort. Now, we talked about destroyer escorts in a previous episode, and they were smaller than destroyers and technically less capable. But let's also remember this. These are the ships that took on the Japanese center force and actually won. Uh, but the dis- uh, but these were called patrol frigates. And they were tiny, I mean, really tiny. If I remember correctly, the USS Rockford, the, uh, the ship that I'm referring to, was less than 300 feet long, if I remember correctly. But yeah, it was tiny. Um, and basically, these ships were meant to, I guess you could say, guard our home ports. They weren't really designed to go out at sea for very long, though, from what I can tell from photographs, they were fully sea capable. They just weren't meant to go very far. But given that the given that our involvement with the Second World War started with an attack on home territory, our um, one of the big fears of the U.S. Navy throughout the Second World War was that our shipping facilities and also naval bases at home would be attacked just like in um, in Pearl Harbor. And some of these areas would be, of course, Puget Sound in the Pacific Northwest, San Diego, San Francisco. These are cities that were, were and are still have significant naval presences. And all of them were, I guess you could describe, worthy targets. But moving on from the Second World War, After the Second World War, the United States went into a crazy period of decommissioning ships. It was just, I would almost say it was left and right they were decommissioning ships, which makes sense. The U.S. Navy had become practically overnight in terms of, I guess you could say national policy, had grown exponentially big. And we're talking a full complement of battleships, cruisers, aircraft carriers, destroyers, lots of destroyers, and also tons of Liberty ships and other support vessels. The U.S. Navy had become massive, and in a post-war world, that wasn't going to be sustainable long-term. So during Truman's presidency and then further onward, especially when President Eisenhower became president, it became clear that he did, uh, even though he believed in strong military policies, he did not believe in long, strong uh, military forces. I believe this had, because he was a little wary of the manufacturers that were uh, involved in the, uh, in the process of making, you know, the war machine, for lack of a better term. But it, but in any case, um, in this new Navy that would have to come out in the latter part of the 20th century, actually, it's quite interesting. One of the names that has resurged in the, um, uh, in the modern U.S. Navy was led by a man by the name of, trying to bring it up here, 
Uh, While he's bringing that up, up, just to ram home what Wade was talking about with the exponential growth in the fleet. On Pearl Harbor Day, December 7th, 1941, the U.S. Navy had 790 ships in commission, which sounds like a lot. But in 1945, we had 6,768. Exactly, Will. The The Navy had gotten ridiculously big. So... Unfortunately, this involved losing a lot of ships and some that we would that as maritime uh, history fans and ship buffs that we lament that they were lost uh, to the scrappers weld torch. Uh, One being, of course, USS Enterprise, CD6. Um, That still hurts. Too soon, Will? Too soon. Still hurts. (laughs) Yeah. The Enterprise was the most decorated ship of the U.S. Navy post-World War II, and somehow she didn't get saved. I'm My mind's still boggled. But anyway, in the 1960s, the Vietnam, of course, we had gone through the Korean War, which essentially ended in stalemate because North Korea still exists and South Korea still exists. And... Um, the U.S. Navy had been somewhat effective, but had taken a bit of a back seat during, uh, compared to the newly founded U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Army, uh, and I guess to a certain extent the U.S. Marine Corps. But in the 1960s, Admiral Elmo Zumwalt, which I think we should be familiar with that name, given that the Navy's newest class of destroyers is, uh, is named after him. But he came up with an idea of what would be called the high-low fleet plan. And basically this meant that a similar-sized classes of ships would be considered high-capability and low-capability. And the high-capability ships would become known as the Spruance-class destroyers, which are one of the most well-known ships of the U.S. Navy of the second, uh, of the second half of the 20th century. Uh, I've known plenty of guys myself, uh, at least in passing, that served on the Spruance class. But on the other side of the coin was what would become frigates. The frigate would come back as, again, a not necessarily a smaller, but a less capable version of the destroyers of the U.S. Navy. And in large part, they would be designed to handle, say protecting amphibious landing forces, you know, supply and replenishment, merchant convoys, and also eventually they would be worked into battleship formations when the Iowa-class battleships were brought back. Now, there were a number of classes that would come out of this this requirement by Zumwalt for a a frigate-equipped Navy. And just to name off a few of the classes that would come out of this, first, First of the class, there'd just be two of them, and these were called the Bronstein class, uh, named after the uh, the first of the ship. But there'd only be two of them, and they were commissioned in 1963, so kind of getting a period of this, um, just post, um, well, post the uh, post Korea, just getting into Vietnam at this point. Now, ironically, these neither of these ships are gone so to speak they were donated to mexico actually in 1993 and given that there's no further information on them i'd assume the uh the mexicans are still using them so more power to them 
Anyway, after that, there would be the Garcia class. Now, there'd be a good bit more of those. There would be 10 of those. And then after that, the Knox class, which I believe Admiral Zumwalt probably had the most uh, direct hand in. Uh, but anyway, this comprised of 46 ships. So we're getting into bigger numbers at this point. And also, the Navy would con continue to grow and shrink and grow and shrink again until Ronald Reagan really demanded his 600-ship fleet capacity. And then after the Knox class, now the Knox class were well-known as well, there was a small subclass of the Garcia class called the Glover class. There was only one of those. And then after that, there would be a frigate class called the, uh, the Brook class, and they would be only six of them, so somewhat insignificant. But then comes the Oliver Hazard Perry class. And we talked about him in our War of 1812 and Revolutionary War. Oliver Hazard Perry is one of the heroes of the U.S. Navy. Just one of the, one of the guys that, the, uh, that I imagine every cadet uh, looks up to when studying tactics and uh, just sheer ballsiness. I'll, I'll say that uh, for Oliver Hazard Perry. Um, and ultimately his, his personal motto would become the name, uh, would become the motto of the U S Navy, which is don't give up the ship. So if anyone deserved a ship named after him, yeah, Perry is definitely up there. Um, so anyway, the Oliver Hazard Perry class comprised of 51 ships. So this was a big class and ultimately Construct well, I should say commissioning of these ships began in 1977 and it would go all the way to 1989. And believe it or not, the last of the um of the Oliver Hazard Perry frigates would be retired in 2014, and there's uh, and that was the USS Ingraham, and they're still dismantling her now. Unfortunately, she was slated to be scrapped, but there's a bunch of them that I think are still in mothballs, uh, if I'm reading my information correctly. So the Perry class is hardly disappeared, but you know, there's quite a few that are in the in the scrap heap, unfortunately. Uh, but to think that this was a class that lasted from the essentially from the 70s all the way to the uh, the 2010s, that's pretty a pretty impressive record i've got to say especially for non-nuclear powered ships you know it's a little more expected when the uh you know when the nimitz class aircraft carriers which are roughly the same era now are lasting into the 2020s only now starting to be replaced by the gerald r ford class but for smaller ships and especially for conventionally powered ships a 40-year career actually almost to 50 years is pretty darn impressive, I would say. So yeah, after the, uh, after the Perry class, uh, I guess technically you could say the type disappeared because most of them, you know, most of them were gone uh, by the 19, uh, by the 1990s. Um, you know, some of them sticked around, stuck around, but most of them were decommissioned either in the 1990s or the two. 2000s with some of them sticking around to later on so the frigate type disappeared again 
until we got some really, really big news. And that was that the U.S. Navy uh, essentially was getting together a consortium uh, of experts. I, it almost sounds like to redesign the fleet. Um, now, this does make sense because a lot of our a lot of our Navy is, well, for lack of a better term, is getting old. Um, the Arleigh Burke class is, you know, as ubiquitous as it is, it was probably a design that was designed in the early 80s, if not the, uh, uh, if not the 70s. And yes, they're still building them today, but it's a design that's a little bit long in the tooth, unfortunately, as much as I love them. Um, and then also the Ticonderogas, well, they're starting to scrap those now. And of course, like I said, the Nimitz class are um, are just now starting to be replaced by their successors. And also, we're looking to our submarine fleet as well. So the U.S. Navy is really looking to modernize uh, the fleet. And fiscal year 2020 of the defense bill for the Navy allocated for a new destroyer and a frigate. And... This is exciting. Now, not only is it exciting because it's a brand new ship type for the U.S. Navy, again, it's also because of the naming, again, and, well, because you said the names, I think you should say this part. Yeah, so we're pretty excited about this because for this new class of frigates, the U.S. Navy is reviving the names of the original six frigates. So far, they've only announced three of the names, but the class leader is the USS Constellation. The next ship is going to be the USS Congress, and the third one is going to be the USS Chesapeake. And as I mentioned, all three of these were names uh, from the original group of six. I don't think one of them will be the Constitution because the Constitution is still uh, in commission. Uh, but if they continue with this theme, and then we can expect to see perhaps a USS President and a USS United States return. Um, the only reason why that might not happen is I, I could see some people thinking that a frigate isn't a prestigious enough ship to name after the whole country. I'm not sure. But at least the first three are named after classic frigates, which is pretty exciting. I mean, we do have a, you know, a uh, LHD that is named USS America. And that's true. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. Now, what's interesting about uh, about this frigate program now the U.S. Navy started dangling for designs of what this new frigate would be earlier in 2020. Now, I can imagine how much the pandemic threw this into, uh, into craziness. But uh, again, we're not going to suffer through that kind of news. But in any case, the, uh, the new Constellation class, we'll call, uh, we'll call her that, uh, the Constellation class frigates, uh, there were a number of designs that technically were already existing that were put forth uh, either for heavy modification or simply for a basis. And as I understand it, the USS Constellation is going to be based on a, a Italian design, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's called the Frem, which was a joint French and Italian design produced by Fin Cantieri, which is a major Italian uh, shipbuilding company. Um, and there were a number of companies that submitted designs for this. The other ones were Astal USA, which they based their design off of the Trimaran, the Independence class littoral combat ship. 
Like... Uh, General Dynamics. Yeah, so General Dynamics Bath Ironworks submitted their design, which was based off of uh, the uh, the Alvaro de Bazan class, which is a, a Spanish ship. Um, Huntington Angles, which is Newport News, uh, they submitted um, a design based off of the Coast Guard cutter. Lockheed Martin submitted a design based off of the Freedom class, which is the other littoral combat ship. Um, but all those guys lost out. And so Finn Cantieri, this Italian company, they won the contract. Uh, but the ships are all going to be built in the United States by Marinette Marine, which is a shipyard in Wisconsin. And there's going to be substantial uh, design changes to adapt it to U.S. service and using U.S. systems and stuff like that. Now, what do you what do you think of this, Will? We've uh, we've had, you know, obviously we've had to base ships off of the needs of fighting against enemies before, but have we ever? This is this is almost a first, I would say, for the U.S. Navy to take a design from another. Uh, from somewhere outside the U.S. and apply it to our own Navy. This is somewhat of a unique position for the Navy, I think. Yeah, I can't honestly think of another example. Um, you know, in the early days, we we did buy some ships from from foreign countries, like during the Revolutionary War, but that's going way back. And of course, um, the Confederacy did it as well, but uh, they right they they, they kind of did that. <laughs> but we're gonna we're gonna take Lincoln's stand uh, stand on that, and they don't count. Yeah, it's not 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 a real country. Um, but um, yeah, I think this is one of the first times that we've adapted a foreign design. So that's pretty interesting. And like Wade said, the reason for this was really driven by the fact that this is a fast development program, and we don't feel that we have time to design a completely new ship. I, I don't know a whole lot about the selection process as to why some of the more domestic designs like the Huntington Ingalls design and the Lockheed Martin design and the Austal design uh, were not selected. I know that the littoral combat ships have had some issues, so that might be why they Big were. Big issues. Um, but, um, I can, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the littoral combat ship class uh, classes of the Freedom and Independence classes have been riddled with either system uh electrical or also structural problems because you'd think you we we would have learned this lesson say back in the um in the uh i think it was the 60s and 70s when uh using aluminum was a little more common in ship structures but the the freedom class and the independence class use aluminum quite extensively and it's proven to be an issue um and also electrical wiring issues. And I think that a couple of them have had severe radar hampering issues as well. Uh, so, and then also there have been some political issues with uh, these ships being designed for very close to home uh, operations, including fighting the war on drugs, which has, uh, the war on drugs is not politically apropos anymore. Uh, so the else. The LCSs are a bit of a ship without a mission. Uh, and then on top of the uh, the design problems, yeah, I can see why the Navy didn't go with those. But as for the others, yeah, I'm a little baffled that that's, that that's the case. Well, but, it's worth noting that the, the Frem frigate design, which, um, which is the one that we ended up choosing, has already been in service for eight years. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a fairly proven design. Um, the uh, Italians have, I think, 10 of them, and the French have eight of them. 
Um, so, you know, it, I think one of the reasons is it's already a proven combat ship. It's definitely more capable than the littoral combat ship designs because those were very lightly armed. Absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, that's probably one of the reasons. I, I would imagine it's a similar reason why we didn't go with the Coast Guard cutter design because those are also much more lightly armed. So, um, yeah. And also, that, just the Coast Guard, they're not designed as warships. This clearly is. Um, now, the uh, looking at the rendering that we have here of the USS Constellation, which will be FFG-62, so they will be picking up right where they left off after the Oliver Hazard Perry class, which makes me very happy. Um, the I gotta say, it does share uh, a few lines uh, based on what we've got with the Oliver Hazard Perry class. Uh, we have a integrated superstructure um, of uh, rear and front, which is uh, pretty common now for stealth issues, you know, saving the radar cross-section. And it looks like uh, we're probably going to have a smaller gun than what the Arleigh Burke class. I'm going to guess it'd probably be a three-inch gun or something along those lines. Um, Let's look. It looks like it's a 57-millimeter gun. So that is... Off the top of my head, I'm not totally sure what that translates to. I can I can find out here, but I, I believe it is smaller than a uh, five inch gun, like we have on the destroyers. That is a that is a two point two four inch gun. Oh, that that's a tiny little thing. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, but then we've got a VLS spot right behind it, which is very good because that was something that I would say doomed the uh, the LCSs, that they didn't have any sort of VLS missile capability. Um, heck, that's what took a good portion of the early Ticonderogas out. Uh, that they And when we say VLS, that means vertical launch system. So they're basically tubes. Yeah, imagine uh, instead of torpedoes laying on the side, imagine missiles pointing straight up inside the hull and they fire vertically and uh, then fly off. Uh, in either in any direction um very uh very interesting system and maybe when we finally have a submarine episode we'll talk about the ultimate version of uh of that but anyway um we seem to have some sort of um sideways missile launcher um behind uh behind i'm guessing this is the exhaust stack here um but it's interesting also that the navy has also released that uh, that these ships will use a similar power setup as the Zumwalts. Uh, so I am fascinated to see that because from what I understand, the Zumwalts uh, have a ridiculously overpowered engines for what uh, for what they actually have. So in a yeah, ship they're designed to have small, a lot of reserve power for future upgrades. Yeah, so uh, for a ship that's smaller than a Zumwalt, probably by almost half, I'm fascinated to see what th that kind of engine system uh, will will produce. And my guess is, is that they will be helicopter capable only. I can't imagine that you could fit a V-22 Osprey on the on the back here. That just looks way it too small. It looks like it's supposed to carry a, a Seahawk helicopter and potentially a Fire Scout helicopter, which is a um, unmanned helicopter. Oh yeah, and oh man, that that'll that'll be neat. 
So I think this is going to be an interesting return to return to form for the for the U.S. Navy. And just the just the fact again, we're one. I would say more excited about the name more than anything else. Both Will and I have a major beef with the U.S. Navy as far as their naming conventions have been for the last ooh, almost fifty years. Um, especially it's not when, what it used to be. No, no. Um, it used to be, for instance, that aircraft carriers were named after significant battles of the uh, of the Navy. That's gone um, and replaced mostly by presidents uh, with a few yeah. uh, with a few exceptions, which I guess. Yeah, they're they're the capital ships of the fleet. OK, that makes a little sense. But then the submarines <laughs> being named after states. Come on. They were named after fish before. That's a lot cooler. <laughs> well, it is worth noting that the latest two aircraft carriers have stepped away from the presidential naming convention because we have the Enterprise, um, which is carrying on a proud name. Um, mm-hmm. And then we also have the Doris Miller, which is named after a, um, a sailor who was a, a hero in World War II. So they seem to be stepping away from that with the most recent names. I'm curious to see for the future uh, Ford class ships because there's supposed to be at least six more of them if uh, they continue to go back to a more traditional naming convention I'd love to see another Yorktown for example yes. um, but um, you know they might go back to the presidents I'm not sure we'll see and and the uh, the new Columbia class of submarines doesn't give any hope there for returning to their their Navy naming conventions so yeah um, anyway uh, the USS Constellation, the USS Congress, the USS Chesapeake. Now, maybe they'll pull a USS New Ironsides. I mean, just for a little tug-in-cheek. They could. That'd uh, be interesting. And there's a lot of other classic frigate names that they could use, too, that are less well-known than the original six, like um, some of the ones we built after the war, like the Brandywine and the Raritan and ships like that. So there are other choices if they want to stick with classic frigates. And also, the uh, one of the last... Uh, Oliver Hazard Perry class ships carried the name of the Samuel B. Roberts. So, oh yeah, they should keep that one around. Yeah, yeah, the destroyer escort that fought like a battleship, folks. Yeah, very, very neat. Um, now, I truly, uh, I truly am interested in what the Navy uh, does going forward. Um, one because of the uh, the situation that now we have. Maybe uh, we have a Navy that's actually ascending uh, in the form of the Chinese Navy, uh, yeah. which is very interesting and has been shown to, you know, we, we haven't had any clashes with the, with the Chinese yet. Um, but given that they are actually actively producing a carrier fleet, that is scary. Um, yeah. So maybe they're the most significant mili- naval challenge that we've had since the Soviet Union, for sure. Yeah, and maybe these frigates are designed to help bolster a new kind of battle fleet. I could, I could see that. Um, well, the Navy is trying to do this thing called Battle Force Twenty Forty Five, where they're trying to increase the overall size of the fleet, and that's a big challenge right now because. We have a lot of aging ships, as Wade mentioned, and replacing them on a one-for-one basis is difficult right now from a budgetary and industrial-based perspective. But actually trying to grow the fleet is even more challenging. And so that's one of the reasons why 
they're going with this frigate design that's you know cheaper and easier to produce. That's also being paired, and we mentioned this with another project to develop the next generation destroyer. And there's not a whole lot of details out about that yet, but it sounds like they're going to try to combine aspects of the Arleigh Burke design with the Zumwalt design um, to make something that's you know easier to make than the Zumwalt and less expensive, but has a lot of the same capability. So, and that's going to be interesting to see what happens with that. And then that ants. And then that begs the question of where will the Ticonderogas be? Uh, will there be a cruiser replacement at some point? Uh, maybe that'll be. Yeah, you don't know. Maybe that'll be too high of a order to get for the 2045 goal that we're uh, that we're talking about here. But in any case, um, this is the start of a very uh, of a new and old thing for the Navy, and. Acres away, boys. We're ready. So, exactly. it, in any case, uh, well, this is a little bit of a shorter episode, but I think we can call it about here. And just for our listeners' sake, we will uh, again. We have uh, we have an email that you can reach us at um, uh, at in the dry dock podcast dot, uh, at gmail and also, um, we will uh, we will be on there periodically to make sure that there are if there are any questions, if there is something that we missed or that we may have gotten wrong, we will uh, we will happily take that take that correction because we uh, we may like to think that we know a lot, but given that the the history of mar- well maritime history is so big we're going to miss something at, at some point. So it, anything like that is well, well received. And then also, if you have an idea for an episode, or if you would like to guest also with us, that is also an option too. So in any case, Will, I think we can weigh anchor, and I will say fair winds and following seas, my friend. Thanks for listening, everybody.